Turn to Hebrews chapter 2, please. Let's begin with prayer this morning. Lord, before we lift up a few specific things regarding the next few minutes we're going to spend together, I want to pray for another local church and another pastor. I want to pray for Terry Blankenship and for FBC Greenville. Lord, first, I want to pray for Terry and his marriage, knowing that that is a walking illustration of the gospel. I pray that others are seeing that the gospel illustrated in how he loves his wife and how his wife loves him. Lord, I pray that first, in the time that he spends studying, that he is equipped and fueled for that time with his family and that they get not the leftovers, but the first fruits of his labor. Lord, I pray that you will guard him as I would pray that you would guard any of us, uh, elders, pastors locally, from living a different life at home than we live in front of folks. Lord, if that means a lower bar publicly, but a higher bar at home, just pray for consistency. Pray for transparency, authenticity, this fueled by a really high view of you and your work and your gospel and your son and a really accurate view of ourselves. Lord, I pray for FBC Greenville. Pray for their worship, Lord. I pray that it's fueled by the preaching of your word. I pray that you would guard them as you would guard us and every other church in this community from busyness in Jesus' name, but that we would move out in a direction equipped and fueled by the weekly journey together in the Word. Whatever way that we can come alongside this church, Lord, I pray that we will be faithful to do so. Lord, also this morning, I want to lift up three new marriages that have really been part of us, that have come out of us. One began last night with Kent and Chelsea Manton. One a few months ago with Kyle and Sandy Louder. And then even in front of that, David Lee and Krista. Lord, we pray that marriages will be just like we prayed for Terry and his wife, that they would be walking illustrations and applications of the gospel. Lord, I pray for these three marriages and for those that are part of this body, that they would be evangelism, that our kids would see what the gospel looks like, that our neighbors would see what it looked like for Christ to love the church in the way a husband treats his wife. Lord, that's only something that you can work. It's not something we can hunker down and muster. We pray that you would work that in these three new marriages, new ministries, and that you would work that in us. Lord, I pray that in these three marriages that you would not make it easy, but that you would cause them to be especially dependent on you and that you would be glorified as they journey together as husband and wife. Pray too, Lord, that you would guard these three marriages from anyone, including either one of them in each marriage, from putting asunder what you join together. And all of that for your glory. Lord, in these next few minutes, as far as the time that we spend together, I pray that you will give, um, that you would just 
quicken our hearts, our ears, our minds to your truth and your ways that we can have a greater view of what you've done for us in Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. When Steve Jobs passed away, I don't know how long ago it was at this point, the uh, founder and CEO of Apple, he made a couple of quotes that when I was preparing for this sermon months ago, I recorded these quotes. You can find them online, I'm sure. You can Google important Steve Jobs quotes, and I bet these would come up. The first one, both of them have to do with life and death. Here's the first one. Remembering that you're going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. Remembering that you're going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. My comment about this one will be much like my comment about the next one. It's noble and courageous, but it really doesn't give me any goods to deal with death. Steve Jobs is amazing, clearly a genius. I, every Apple product that exists, I either own or want to own. <laughs> Apple is amazing. Just going into the Apple store is a treat. You just walk in there and it's just heaven, uh, not literally. <laughs> but Steve Jobs is amazing, but this quote really does nothing for me in dealing with the matter of life and death. Here's the second quote. Shared this at a commencement ceremony. Death is very likely the single best invention of life. It's life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you. You can envision this taking place at a commencement ceremony. Right now, the new is you, but someday not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. Sorry to be so dramatic, but it's quite true. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Man, another really good quote to really scratch that natural man itch. I mean, it just sounds like something that just sort of gets you uh, fired up and excited to face life head on. But if you really break it down and you really look for answers to deal with death, you're not going to find them there. Really, in fact, the emphasis that's coming from Steve Jobs here is it's clearly spoken by somebody that has no view of death, what takes place next. No view whatsoever, but has a massive view of life, of the present. And in really, a lot of ways, what, he's, what he does here, it has a serious make-your-mark tone to it, if you think about it which clearly he did. Most of you have an iPhone in your pocket. Are you, if you still have one that's made out of wood, you know, the old-fashioned one, you want an iPhone. So clearly he's made his mark, and his quotes are brave, but they really don't give me any goods to deal with the inevitable. There are no answers other than pour your life into this one because you won't get another. Really, the tone of it, as you think about it, sounds a lot like Babel to me. It sounded a lot like Babel that said, come let us build ourselves a city 
and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. That's an ancient version of exactly what Steve Jobs has said. This is all you got? So make your mark, build your tower, pour yourself into it, but there's no answers to deal with what happens next. Steve Jobs, just like these people in Babel, then dispersed, died answerless. This message this morning is going to deal with what Steve didn't deal with in his quotes. What he didn't deal with in his commencement ceremony. This message this morning is going to deal with hope in death, victory over death, and freedom from fear of death. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And he will deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Now, just for a moment, I want to reacquaint us with the context This Hebrews letter is really a sermon that's written to a church, likely a little small house church made of Hellenistic Jews, Messianic Jews, mind you, who apparently have hunkered down under severe persecution. Their parents and their grandparents had worshiped well even unto death, yet this church at present seems to be hiding. I don't do this every week, but I want to take just a minute to show you some of these examples. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10, since we're right there in Hebrews anyway. Weekly, I re-invite us into the context, and I don't often make a lot of these connections. So I'm just going to take just a moment so you see some of the tangibles of what the Hebrews church was dealing with, how they were playing out their faith. Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 19, there's a therefore that points back to what he said beforehand. He he goes to a few things starting in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession. And verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Okay, good stuff. Because here's what's going on in the Hebrews church. Let's stir up one another to love and good deeds. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. It's an age-old issue, showing up to corporate worship (laughs) 2,000 years ago. That's the problem. They're not showing up. There's a habit for some already, but instead encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So they're not gathering corporately. You think that's a small deal and people are checking rolls on you? Maybe it is a small deal when it's just a head count on a Sunday morning, but when it's engaging the living God and walking with his people, you can see how important it is. That's the first issue. 
The second issue is in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So apparently there's deliberate sin. There's not showing up when the people of God gather. There's deliberate sin that effectively plays out in verse 29 as spurning the Son of God, profaning the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and outraging the Spirit of grace. He ends the little section there in verse 31. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The writer of Hebrews tells this little church in verse 32, he says, recall the former days. Now that's key. Former days. You have been, may have been a Medal of Honor Christian at one point, but you're not now. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes being partners with those who who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Take it. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He ends the chapter with, We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Those passages are speaking to the heart of the Hebrew problem. These guys had begun to play it safe. They had stopped listening in chapter 2 and chapter 5. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. They were neglecting to gather corporately, chapter 10. They were not maturing in their faith, chapter 6. And they're in danger of falling away. Worst of all, though, at least what we're going to deal with today, worst of all, they're living like slaves, effectively. Enslaved to fear of death. That's what we're going to deal with today. So he takes them, this Hebrews preacher, go go back to chapter 2 over there. I want you to see this in front of us. Chapter 2, verse 14. He takes them to three verbs connected to the incarnation of Christ, God taking on flesh, and to his death. And those three things he takes them to are these. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that is, flesh and blood, that through death, his incarnation and death, he might first destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. That's where we've been these last few weeks. Secondly, that he would deliver all those who through, through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And then third is on down into verse 17. He's made like his brothers in every respect. And here's the third thing, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. A bunch of people that have stopped listening, stopped gathering, who are hunkering down and playing it safe. Maybe he's got one shot. I don't know. Maybe he's in prison. We don't know why he's not there in Rome. Maybe this is his only letter. He says, I want to take them to the incarnation and the death of Christ so they will see effectively what took place there. Satan was destroyed, this one that looks so big to them in their context. And they were delivered from the slavery. They're not to keep living that way. And Christ was made a perfect high priest, making propitiation for their sins. The thing we're going to focus on today is their deliverance or the deliverance for all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That first verb, that destroy, is connected to that second one. 
They go hand in hand. The destruction of Satan and the deliverance from fear of death, that enslavement to fear of death, those are connected. Because in his role as accuser, apart from the righteousness of another, you have a lot to fear because his accusations are true. Apart from the righteous clothing of another, if Satan is standing in the high court of heaven and he says, you're guilty, you're wearing filthy rags. It's the best you got, but it's filthy compared to a holy God. You know what? He's right. So the fear of death comes from realizing that you have no answer when you stand before the living God someday. You're going to stand there with no excuse. You're going to stand there guilty before a holy God. That would admittedly make for some fear in death if you knew you weren't right before your maker. I haven't had the chance to spend time with a lot of people that are heading toward death, but I've spent time with a few. And what I see in these few that I had a chance to spend time with before their deaths was a real examination. How am I standing? How am I going to stand before my God? How have I lived my life? Was it in a way that will make it to where I can actually stand up in that judgment? Or will I have tremendous punishment in that judgment? If you knew that you were going to stand before your God and your maker and you didn't have an answer, then that's going to bring some serious fear of death and you would do everything you could to back out of it, to back out of that reckoning. So the fear in death and fear of death is a very natural thing. And it's a consequence of knowing that you won't fare well. I haven't spent time with Atheists and agnostics going to death. But man, I remember two, in 9-11 years ago when the trade towers fell, I remember agnostics and atheists crying out, Oh my God. I think there's something built into every single one of us where we know we're going to face our maker someday. And we know we have a major problem. Even those who won't acknowledge it realize we have a major problem in facing that maker someday. And there's tremendous death that comes from that. Years ago, I think it was 1992, December, I spent a few months training with a bunch of Marines to go on deployment. We got on a ship and we're deployed. Supposedly, we were going to go to Australia and really see the sights. You know, there's nothing going on in the world at the time. And then Somalia happened. And then guys who had so much bravado, so much pride, so much strength on the morning that we are launching in Zodiac boats toward Mogadishu, Somalia, under the cover of darkness, about 2.30 in the morning, I'm seeing guys sobbing and throwing up over the side of the boats and praying to a God that they wouldn't, wouldn't have acknowledged the day before because they're facing death and they know they're unprepared. If you have no answer with that future reckoning, you're understandably afraid. It's natural. And something else that's natural is a tendency to medicate that fear. We medicate it with busyness. Just stay busy enough. But then the problem is every now and again somebody dies and you have to reckon with it. 
You can medicate with stuff, but then again, somebody dies, and you have to reckon with it. You can medicate it with achievement, but then again, somebody dies, and you have to reckon with it. Death jars us awake again and again, and the fear returns for one who has no answer. One word that's going to connect us to the answer this morning, or at least where we're going to go this morning, is the word slavery. The word slavery in this Hebrews passage. In verse 15, we're dealing with that second verb, deliverance. Delivery of all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There's not a person in the Hebrews church who wouldn't have gone somewhere when they heard that word read. And that's where we're going to go this morning. Turn to Exodus chapter 14. To the enslavement and deliverance of an older, ancient Jewish people. Ones this Hebrew church would have identified with. This one word, slavery, is going to be our escort today, and it's going to be a word that would have taken every single one of these guys back 1,500 years to the exodus out of slavery in Egypt. So we're in Exodus chapter 14. It's where we're going to spend the majority of our morning. I'm going to give you a little bit of context before we climb into this chapter. This is the story of another fearful bunch of Jews. God made a promise to a man named Abraham years before. He said, I'm going to give you lots of offspring. I'm going to give you a land. You're going to have so many kids, they're going to be like sand on the seashore and like stars in the heavens. Meanwhile, he's saying this to the foolish things of the world. This guy is old and his wife is barren, very unlikely, but then God gives them a child named Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, and then you may know the story from that point. Jacob has a bunch of sons, one of which is named Joseph, who's beaten up by his brothers and sold into slavery, moves off to Egypt, and then through famine, this whole growing family that God promised Abraham he would have moves to Egypt as they begin 430 years initially as honored guests. Sure, Joseph, bring your family. We'll give them even a special place called Goshen where they can live. Only problem is, as they grew in number and greatness, the Pharaohs and the Egyptians began to look around each other and saying, these guys are quite prolific, prolific, lots of them. And I bet they would be good workers. So let's put them to work. It wasn't long before the Israelites knew no other life than a life of slavery. And it's in this context where their version of Satan, Pharaoh, looks large. It's in this context that God's people likely feel forgotten, like the Hebrew church likely felt in Rome. And it's in this context that God calls a man named Moses to lead them out of slavery. This man leads God's difficult people through the ten plagues, ending with the climax of the Passover. When the Passover lamb is sacrificed and blood is slathered on the doorposts and lentils, so those homes would be passed over. And then the firstborn of every Egyptian home is taken, really, in some ways, as an offering. The Egyptians at this point say, quote, 
up. Go out from my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me as you go. So the nation of Israel, freshly freed, carrying the loot of Egypt, moves off in the direction of the land that was promised to Abraham. And quote from chapter 13, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. We pick up in chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pehahariath. I don't even know if that's even close, but it doesn't matter. Between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. That's God saying that. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that his people was, that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we've done, that we've let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped by the sea, by Pehahariath, in front of Baal Zephon. Now, I want you to see, first of all, that God hardens the heart of Pharaoh to pursue the Israelites. Pharaoh's sitting around after Israel has left. He's sitting around maybe at this point having buried the firstborn of Egypt, and he has some God-given amnesia about how bad the plagues were. And he says to himself, Self, what in the world was I thinking letting our entire labor force leave our country for free. Let's go get those jokers. So that's exactly what he did. He loaded up his army and his chariots. And I want you to see something here before we continue. We've considered the last few weeks some really what I would say for some of you are new thoughts on Satan. Most of us, I think, not all of us, some of us have had some really good teaching, but I can say for myself and a lot of you that I'm walking with, our previous understanding of Satan and God was sort of a dualism, sort of a yin and yang, sort of a positive and negative, like they're always kind of fighting against each other. But what we've considered these last couple of weeks is that Satan doesn't even scratch his hiney except by permission from the living God. There's no yin and yang Satan doesn't do a thing except by permission from the living God. When he steps in the high court of heaven and asks for permission to beat up Job, he has to ask for it. And he has to get permission. And he gets boundaries. This first time around, 
You can do anything you want to his family, but don't harm his body. The second time around, you can do anything to his body, just don't kill him. We've considered these last few weeks some things that are likely new for people to realize about Satan. A question I had a couple of weeks ago that's a really good question is why in the world God would even allow Satan to do evil in the first place? Why would he allow Satan into the garden? If it's true that it's not a yin and yang thing and that God allowed Satan in there to tempt Eve and Adam, why in the world would he even do such a thing? First of all, you have to know that if God is omniscient, which we trust that he is, means all-knowing, and that he's not bound to the continuum of time like we all are, that he knew before he ever said, let there be light, that there would be sin in the garden. You've got to know that he wasn't caught off guard. When he shows up and he begins to question Adam and Eve, and first of all say, where are you? And he's not because he doesn't know where they are. He wants them to know where they are. And secondly, when he begins to question them about what they've done, it's not because he doesn't know. He wants them to know what they've done. God knew exactly what was going to happen in the garden. He wasn't caught off guard by this. He knew exactly what he was going to allow Satan to do to Job. He knew exactly what he's going to let Satan to do through Nero in Rome. So why would he do this? The answer is, I think clearly, when you develop and synthesize these contexts and these passages and you try to make sense of it, what you find is without darkness, light can't even be enjoyed. Without darkness, there isn't even light. You don't appreciate light except that you experience some darkness. Without Satan and his allowed work in the garden, in Egypt... In Rome, maybe even in Greenville, maybe even in your life, then God's glory as mighty deliverer cannot be seen and cannot be enjoyed. If you've never experienced anything that you need deliverance from, then who needs a deliverer? So it's allowed darkness because God's wonderful attributes are invisible without their anti-versions. They're invisible without their anti-version. So he hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he is an ancient version of Nero. So he's the embodiment of Satan, inflicting pain, suffering, hate, and discontent on God's people so that God can show up as mighty and great and deliverer. So here they sit, newly freed, with the Red Sea to their back, and the advancing army of Egypt to their face. We pick up in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. I don't think that's what they said. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, first of all, we need to know that fear is a very natural response. After all, these folks that are crying out to God and to Moses, 
Every last one of them were born into slavery. Their family, as far back as they could remember by this point, were enslaved to Egypt. So seeing them bearing down on you would be a fearful thing. You've never known freedom. And you're seeing these chariots and hearing these hoofbeats. And you're seeing this cloud of dust. And you're turning around and you've got a, a sea behind you. You're like, man, we're going to die. You can imagine this would be especially frightening. And they respond by turning on God and turning on his appointed leadership. We were better off in Egypt, Moses. You've led us out here just to be murdered. Look at all those chariots and those horses and this sea behind us. And I wonder at times if the Hebrew church didn't do the same thing that the Israelites are doing right here, pining for their time before Christ. Because life was good for them before Christ. Jews weren't persecuted in the Roman Empire. You need to know that. Plain old ordinary Jews were not persecuted in the Roman Empire. Christians were. And guess who Christians received the worst punishment from? Jews. Think about it. I wonder if the Hebrew church wasn't in some way pining for the time before they followed Christ, before Granny became a human torch in Nero's garden. I wonder if they weren't pining for a time before they followed Christ when they actually had a job. (laughs) And they weren't having to hunker down and have everything in common just so they wouldn't starve. I wonder if something in them wasn't pining even for their enslavement before the Messiah. Here they are, free, pining for Egypt. It's a pattern, too. Let me show you this pattern, because I think you might see yourself in this pattern a little bit. Just listen to these passages. Exodus chapter 16, verse 2. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Remember back when we were enslaved and we ate those big pots of meat? That was really good, wasn't it? Guys, are really have amnesia. Chapter 17, verse 2. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted here for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Some other examples. The book of Numbers, chapter 11. Now the rabble was among them that had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Well, it didn't cost anything because you were a slave. Remember all that fish we used to eat in Egypt? That cost us nothing. And oh, the cucumbers and the melons. I promise you that's what it says. The leeks, the onions, and even the garlic. Ah, man, remember Egypt? How great was Egypt? Later in the chapter, he says, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you've wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. 
Chapter 14, all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. (laughs) Seriously? Let's go back to where we were enslaved. I wish those were the last examples, but it goes on and on and on. Here's a couple more. Chapter 20, verse 5. Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Chapter 21, verse 5. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food that falls from the sky. We loathe this stuff that all we have to do is just go out and literally open our mouths or our baskets, and it's full. We loathe this stuff. I reckon that the Hebrew church did their share of pining of what they had before Christ, pining for what they had before Christ. And I wonder if we ever pined for our life before Christ. Or you think you were free, but you weren't. Is there any aspect of your life before Christ that you pined for, that you may have gone right on ahead and participated in? That you may be participating in now? I think there's a reality that you can take people out of slavery, but it's a whole lot harder to take the slavery out of the people because we have a pattern like a dog we return to our vomit. We see it in the Israelites. We see it in the Hebrew church. And if you're really honest with yourselves, I bet you can see it in yourselves. I see it in me. I want you to know that what we do every week, part of the reason that the Hebrews preacher is saying, you guys have to gather each week. You can't neglect the gathering of God's people. Part of what we do each week is to stir each other up by way of reminder that we're not slaves anymore. We stir each other, each other up by way of reminder in the preaching of the word and singing songs that are true about God so that we're reminded that we're not enslaved to fear of death anymore. And that Egypt is a bummer. <laughs> That's what we do each week. When I don't see somebody for a period of weeks or months, I'm thinking, man, have they gone back to Egypt? Have they returned to their vomit? And likely, in most cases, they have. The thing the Hebrews preacher is calling them to is the same thing that we call you to each, each week, to engage this thing because it stirs us up by way of reminder that we should not fear death. We are not slaves anymore. This people here, this Israelite people, is proving to be a very difficult people, as is the Hebrew people. But God has a purpose in this. While they pine, God purposes. Listen to this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 4 where you're going to see purpose and you're going to hear purpose. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you've heard it and still live? Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials and by signs and by wonders, those are the plagues, and by war and by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? 
To you it was shown that you may know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. This right here, Moses is reminding his people of what God has done and what God is. It's the same message that we engage week after week. So that we're stirred up by way of reminder, we're not in Egypt anymore. While they're pining, God has purpose. And God here through Moses is reminding them that God had purpose in their wilderness experience, that God has purpose in their Roman context, and God has purpose in our context in Greenville. Go back to our story in Exodus if you've turned to another page. Chapter 14, picking up in verse 13 and 14, these are two of the sweetest passages in this whole story. They are the climax of the entire Exodus, these verses 13 and 14. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. You have the seed of your back. You don't even know what the solution is yet. And Moses is sitting here telling them, God's going to fight this battle for you. All you have to do is stand still and see what the salvation of the Lord is. Be still, watch, be silent while God works for you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that we cherish. That's the gospel that we share with others. Be still, be silent, and watch the salvation of the Lord. Here's something that's really cool. That word salvation in Hebrew is the word Yeshua. Yeshua is translated in Aramaic, Jesus. Be still, be silent, and watch Yeshua fight your battle for you. Man, that is our gospel. Keep your finger in Exodus and look over at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. It's not coincidence that that word there translated is Jesus. It's not coincidence that that shows up, that that word shows up in the Exodus. Listen to this conversation that takes place, real shiny conversation on a mountaintop in Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he's praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing becomes dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him. Moses, the same dude that we're looking at over here in Exodus 14, and Elijah, who appeared in glory... And spoke of his departure. Now, if you have the English Standard Version, just another reason why I enjoy the ESV. You look down at the bottom of the page. There's a little number beside departure. And there's a little note down at the bottom of the page that that word departure is the Greek word exodus. Who better to show up at his transfiguration about and talk with him about his exodus than the one who led God's people out of the first exodus? Moses. And Moses and Elijah show up and they speak with him about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Here we are at the transfiguration. Moses and Elijah show up and they're talking with him about his exodus. 
They're talking with him about the ultimate crossing over where Jesus is going to accomplish via his death the ultimate exodus. This is one big story. You've got to see that. The story of the exodus is not disconnected from our gospel. It illustrates the gospel. Be still and watch Yeshua fight for you. Be still, Hebrew church. Watch Yeshua destroy Satan and deliver you from fear of death. Watch Yeshua fight for you. This is what the Hebrews preacher is saying. Christ took on flesh. Christ died so that you would be freed from slavery. He carried you over from certain death with Pharaoh or Nero or Satan to certain life. You don't need to fear death anymore. I will do the work for you. Back to our story in Exodus, verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, his horsemen. And the Egyptians Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was this cloud and a cloud of darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near and the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us free from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back on the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all of the host of Pharaoh had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on Dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, 
Moses. All they had to do was stand still and watch him swallow up the enemy. They need not fear Pharaoh or his chariots or his army. They need not fear the seemingly hopeless Hebrews church, though you don't yet see all things in subjection to him. You see him seated, crowned with glory and honor, and in session. Though they don't yet see all things in subjection to him, they can see him ruling and reigning. That's where the Hebrews preachers taking them, just like God is taking these Israelites here. God has fought for you and he will protect you. They will pass through the death of the Red Sea, certain death with the army facing them and the sea behind them on dry ground. Dry and toasty. And in case, Israelites, you need some evidence, you'll see evidence littering the seashore with bloated, dead Egyptian bodies. You need some evidence? There they sit. Dead Egyptians everywhere. Hebrew church, you need some evidence? You'll see demons leaping like fleas to pigs or whatever else they might jump onto to run and hide from our champion. Right? You need some evidence? You'll see Satan grabbed by the nape of his neck and bound and chunked into the pit. You need evidence? How about rulers and authorities that are disarmed and put to open shame? How about a parade of captives stripped and bound? How about a strong man bound and his goods plundered? The Hebrew church has evidence lying bloated and stinking on the seashore. And so do we. Man, this Hebrew passage is like a New Testament version of the Exodus story. On one side, they're under sentence of death, and on the other side, life. And God did all the work of getting them there. Man, as I see the layout of it, it makes me think of other passages. Here's just a few snapshots. This is a this is a theme in our Bibles. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's not working, the sons of disobedience, among whom we once all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, sitting facing Egypt's armies with a sea behind us. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. You didn't do the work. He did all the work. Watch him do the work. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus as we stand dry and toasty with a towel around us. Because we pass from death to life because of what he did. Stand still and watch Yeshua do what Yeshua does. We need not fear death. On one side, there's severe and noticeable darkness. And on the other side, light he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us 
to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Who did that? Yeshua did that. He took us from one side of the Red Sea to the other because that's what Yeshua does. In the next chapter on the next page, he put them, the rulers and authorities, to open shame by triumphing over them. You see their bloated bodies on the seashore? This is a theme in our Bibles, and it's one that we can't miss because it, this fueled the martyrs. This equipped people to face death and face it well, and it equips us now in our context. While we don't face fear of, uh, of being martyred necessarily, it should equip us to live boldly and bright and salty in our context, knowing that our Lord indeed reigns that he did the work, and he's taken us across. On one side of the Red Sea, you're not adopted. On the other side, you are. Listen to this passage from Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. On one side of the sea, you have an accuser with real dirt on you. On the other side, though, you don't. On one side, you have an army that can destroy you. And on the other side, he can't even touch you, First John tells us. On one side, it's hopeless. And on the other side, limitless. Sometimes what we do when we're facing that hopeless situation, the human tendency is to try and build a bridge with good works. But we know better because the army's bearing down on us. The cloud is kicking up around that army. You can hear the hoofbeats. There's no time for bridge building. You need another answer. You need Yeshua to do the work for you. We've seen him at work through the story of the gospel. We've seen him do things that we couldn't have even imagined. It blesses me to think that Moses is sharing these words with these people about what's going to happen and what God is going to do in verses 13 and 14, saying, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he's going to work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see with that big cloud of dirt kicked up, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. He hadn't separated the Red Sea yet. Moses wasn't even in on the plan yet. But he's trusting that Yeshua is going to show up. Man, that's living free right there. This Hebrew church needed to be reminded of God's deliverance of a Hebrew people 1,500 years earlier. For as Pharaoh looked large, so did Nero, and so does Satan. But God is bigger, and Yeshua reigns. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn called And Can It Be in 1738, that I think he must have studied the same story. Listen to these words. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. 
My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Still the small inward voice I hear that whispers all my sins forgiven. Still the atoning blood is near that quenched the wrath of hostile heaven. I feel the life as wounds impart. I feel the Savior in my heart. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. If you've seen Yeshua do the work for you in salvation and by faith you've crossed over, then you can and should walk fearlessly with holy and humble swagger, knowing that our God reigns. Seeing the enemy lying bloated on the seashore. Knowing that you have passed through and you will pass through death, dry and toasty. The ultimate battle has been fought and won. So now we go fight our little wee battles, informed and fueled by this big one. The ultimate battle has been won. I think about a Hebrew in this context that must have gotten it, must have said this to himself. If he got what the Hebrews preacher is saying, he's saying to himself, the persecution of Rome and what they might do to me and my family pales in comparison to the war he's already won in death and through death. And the one who held the power of death that is now clearly defeated. I've been freed from slavery to fear of death. So I can fight this Rome. I can fight this Jericho. I can fight this divorce. I can fight this marriage struggle or this sickness or this slander or whatever little bitty war I might face in light of the battle already won. That's walking and living freely. I don't know about you, but that gives me some goods for dealing with death. I think a lot of Steve Jobs, he was a genius, but he had nothing more than a philosophy to make the best of the inevitable. But in Christ, man, we have an answer. In Yeshua, we have deliverance. This morning, If you are living in fear of death because you know that you don't have an answer before your maker in these next few minutes I urge you to ask your God to deliver you through the work of another. I don't care if you've been in church your whole life and you think man I'm good. I don't know why I'm kind of like convicted right now or emotional but I'm good. If there's something in you that fears death, and I'm not talking about the pain of death. Everybody fears, I hope this doesn't hurt. I'm talking fearing the outcome, that I know I'm going to stand before my maker. What is in me, is just, it just knows it, and I have no answer. Deal with that right now. If you see what Yeshua did with Israel, 
and you trust what Yeshua did with the Hebrew church? And you come in contact with people here that Yeshua has delivered? And I encourage you, walk out in that. Step out in that in these next few minutes as we sing together, as we take the Lord's Supper together. Ask the Lord, Lord, I need Yeshua. I need to be still. I've been building a bridge. And I know I can't outrun that army. I need an answer outside of myself. I need righteous clothing of another. I need Yeshua to take me across. If you're doing that this morning, I urge you to let whoever you came with know. Or if you're a kid and you're hearing this this morning, you're like, man, I'm convicted. I've been bridge building. I've been trying to be a good boy and good girl. And now I know that I cannot fare against Pharaoh and his army. Then you tell your parents how much you need Yeshua. And parents, you pray with your kids that they will cast themselves on his grace and his mercy, standing still and watching him do the work. Adults too, share who you came with. Share who you came with and let them walk with you on this journey. Because the only appropriate response to seeing this is to trust him and to follow him. And you can't do that by yourself. Let me pray. Lord, I pray for two things in these next couple of minutes. I pray first, I pray first for those who are trying through their good works, through their own efforts, to somehow be ready to stand before you. I pray that the Holy Spirit spoke in spite of me in fumbling words and feeble efforts. There's some hearts in this room where they know that they have no answer before you. That Satan does have the power of death over them because his accusations are true. Lord, I pray that if anybody is seeing that, that they would come under severe conviction over their sin first. And secondly, that they would cast themselves at the feet of Yeshua, being still, and watching him do the work through his incarnation and cross. That they would be carried over from death to life, from orphan to adopted, cherished child. Lord, I beg for that. I beg for that. Secondly, Lord, I pray for those who have crossed over. 
who might in some way be pining for Egypt or pining for the trappings or might in some way be living enslaved to fear of death. Lord, I pray that this has been a word of encouragement. I pray that hearts will sing and soar today, seeing and enjoying your salvation through Christ. Pray that you'll have your way with us through this time we've spent together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. My hope and prayer this morning um, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper is that these sermons, this time we spend in Hebrews is growing, uh, growing us, it's changing paradigms and that we're enjoying even more the finished work of Christ. This week, just spending time in his word, it's been so affirming. And I'm thankful for men who will spend time in the Word and faithfully share the truth with us. Listen to a little bit of the already. First Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned, ED, returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, who has, according to 1 Peter 3, gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So, as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body this body of flesh, by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Colossians 2, 9 says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Does this sound familiar? What we've walked in? And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I know this is a little different. Ben, you did this a few weeks ago, so it's not unknown, but I wanted to consider both the body and the blood. 
Because as I was preparing, I was thinking about what does it mean to remember? Um, when we first started doing this weekly, I was a little bit concerned for myself that it might become routine. And I just, I just want to say it hasn't at all. It's something I just want to run to every week. Uh, a good reminder. Um, just like coming together corporately, as Ben was sharing, this is what we do. This is partaking of the body right here. We are the body of Christ. And it's just so good every week. And I want to consider these things. And I, you know, How does that change me? How does gathering weekly change me when truth is exposed? Spending time in his word has just been so affirming. I want to read this to you. I want you to hear this. And this, this has everything to do with dying to sin, something we're not a slave to anymore. You know, we've got to understand that. We live so many days and hours in slavery, and we do it, we can step right out of here. So what does it mean to remember? For in him, this is in Colossians 2, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now listen in chapter 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated, seated in incession, as Ben said, at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Don't return to your vomit. Set your eyes on him. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have, been, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. It might be good for us to just walk around all week with these. If it stirred us up by way of reminder, his body, his blood. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. See, that's the difference. We don't do these things for our gain. Not for my gain. You just heard it sung. Not for my gain, but for your glory. It's for his glory. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's partaking of the body, the body of Christ. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In thanks.
his body broken for us, broken for us, that we would know him, walk with him, die to sin, let's eat. With thankfulness in worship, live to righteousness. Let's drink. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. We are, um, we are humbled by uh, your love for us that you have expressed uh, in Christ. Uh, I pray that you would bless us um, as you keep our minds focused on, on what matters as you cause us to specifically remember uh, what's been achieved for us. I pray that you would show us in the different ways uh, how it is that we are to be still, uh, to know that you're God, to watch you achieving salvation for us. Lord, we also want to continue to pray for another uh, recently married couple, Joseph and Callie Shumate, that you would bless their marriage in the, in the same manner that Ben prayed, that you would bless others at the beginning of our service. I pray for Sarah as she is joining this body of believers. I pray that you would use her as you see fit, that she would use her, her spiritual gifts for service in this body. Uh, Lord, we are very blessed today. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great day.